2: Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
0: People are confused uh, with the ruling. Um, and you know I think the, the concern that some families had had in the very beginning that this day was going to come where they were going to have to relive another trial uh, and you know they shouldn't have to relive a trial
3: that was former boston mayor marty walsh a year ago after a federal appeals court threw out the death sentence of boston marathon bomber johar sarnaev that decision will now be at the center of one of the biggest cases the supreme court will hear when it returns in october my guest is constitutional law professor harold krent of the chicago kent college of law How? what issues will the Supreme Court be considering in deciding whether to reinstate the death penalty for Tsarnaev?
4: The Tsarnaev case arises out of the awful Boston Marathon bombing, and Tsarnaev, of course, was caught red-handed. He was sentenced to death, and two challenges in this case led the First Circuit to overturn not the conviction, but the imposition of the death penalty. The two grounds were, first, that the defense attorney was not permitted to question the jurors about the extent to which they had read about the bombing prior to being seated as jurors. And second, at the capital phase or the mitigation phase, Tarnayev argued principally that he was under the spell and influence of his older brother, who had been killed in the shootout with the police, and that he had tried to introduce evidence of a grisly set of murders that the older brother had committed previously, including dominating a friend and trying to get the friend to help him commit these murders. And the court had rejected the defense's effort to introduce this information. So those are the two issues raised to the Supreme
3: Court. Why take this case? Because the context has changed since Attorney General Merrick Garland has stopped all federal executions. I
4: think Supreme Court might be taking this case not just because of its notoriety, but to investigate the use of harmless error in death penalty cases. And indeed, the Supreme Court took another case where the harmless error doctrine may arise. That case arose from when a defendant was shackled in the jury, just as we saw in the Chicago 7 movie recently. And the Sixth Circuit reversed the conviction on the ground that the shackling of a defendant could never be innocent. And I think the court took that as well to look at the harmless error doctrine. Obviously, the evidence was overwhelming with respect to Tarnayev, and that may have influenced the Supreme Court to take the case. Politically, this is fascinating because President Biden has said that he's an opponent of the death penalty, but he has acquiesced into allowing the Supreme Court to hear this case somewhat of a head scratcher in terms of why he is allowing the case to go forward. The Biden administration could have easily gotten rid of this case by just saying that they would never enforce the death penalty and but obviously he's willing to allow the court to make these kinds of decisions even if he won't use the death penalty during his term.
3: So let's turn now to a case that's destined to be one of the most watched and perhaps controversial of next term, centering on a Mississippi law that would ban abortions in almost all cases after 15 weeks of pregnancy. What is Mississippi asking here?
4: This case is important because it directly challenges the viability test that the Supreme Court has long upheld in Will versus Wade and in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Under that scheme, The state had insufficient reason or insufficient justifications to regulate the woman's right to choose prior to viability. Under this Mississippi statute or the Gestational Age Act, the line that's drawn is really rather one of 15 months. So the court would have to jettison or get rid of the whole Roe framework in order to uphold the law here, and it may well do that. So this is an incredibly significant decision. And what the court would replace it with is unclear, except perhaps to give the green light to states to ban abortion as many did prior to Roe versus Wade.
3: So Mississippi is asking for a sweeping ruling here, but can the justices decide this case without overturning Roe or Casey?
4: I don't think so. That's what's so telling about this case and that they chose to take this case is because there's no way that I can see for them to uphold the gestational age act and still be consistent with the framework of Roe versus Wade. They might adopt a different framework, but it would not be the one that focuses on viability as their precedents dictate.
3: The issue in this case hadn't divided the lower courts, so they could easily have not taken this case.
4: Right. What's amazing is that that took the case because this is not a case, as with others, chipping away the abortion right. It is actually a frontal attack, at least a frontal attack on the framework set out in Roe versus Wade and in Casey. The Supreme Court's going to consider making it easier for people to walk around with a gun? I mean, that's just backwards and dangerous. So I heard that news and my heart sank.
3: Like New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, the hearts of gun control advocates across the country sank when the Supreme Court announced it would decide whether to allow most people to carry a handgun in public. I've been talking to Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago-Kent College of Law. So Hal, this will be the first time in more than a decade that the Supreme Court takes up a major Second Amendment case. What's at stake here? The
4: court has stayed away. As you mentioned, from Second Amendment cases for ten years, and the lower courts are split in how to analyze cases when there are certain state regulations about background checks, state regulations about what kind of guns one can purchase, and state regulations, as in this case, about carrying a pistol—a concealed carry law—which would allow someone to carry a pistol in public. And so they've divided both in terms of what kind of scrutiny to apply, as well as in results. Most courts have divided the universe into a core and non-core gun ownership issue. Owning guns at home would be core. Having an assault weapon would not be core. And the question then that's puzzled these courts is whether having a pistol in public is such a core Right, which then could only be limited if there is a compelling governmental state interest. And, you know, the courts are split and their history is split. Some courts have relied upon history and said that there is no kind of ingrained history of waving around a pistol in public or even keeping one concealed in public as there is in having hunting rifles or in having guns at home. So the courts have been split on the historical pedigree of concealed carry as well as on the standard of review to apply. So this is be a very telling case because the court will have to give some kind of help to lower courts about how to analyze the many, many Second Amendment cases on background checks, on licensing that exist. Or they may take a narrow view and say that in this case, New York has said you can only have a, a license if you have good cause. And that good cause is open to interpretation on a case-by-case basis, do you have a fear for your life? Do you live in a lousy neighborhood? You know, what is the reason that you give? And they may decide that that kind of subjectivity has no place in the Second Amendment. And so they may take a narrow way out, not talk about the standard of review at all, but just say that states, if they limit a right to carry guns, have to do so in an objectively verifiable way.
3: Looking at the court, You have Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who joined an opinion with Justice Clarence Thomas, who is an avid defender of the Second Amendment, that described gun-carrying restrictions as imposing an onerous burden on a fundamental right. Where do you see this conservative court on this issue? Do they want to move forward with less restrictions on the Second Amendment? It's
4: a tough question to predict in terms of the court. I don't think the court is going to go far as Justice Thomas wants them to. He has said in public that this is just like the First Amendment, and we shouldn't allow any more kinds of restrictions on speech outside the home, and so we shouldn't allow restrictions on gun ownership outside the home either. On the other hand, the court has varied Fourth Amendment rights, whether someone's in the home or outside the home, and has done so even this past term. So I think that the court will still be divided, though my guess is that they will strike down the concealed carry licensing system that New York has adopted.
3: And I should note that Michael Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg Radio, is a donor to groups that support gun control, including Every Town for Gun Safety. Now turning to a somewhat less controversial case involving religious rights, the court will consider whether states can exclude religious schools from a student aid program because it's used to teach religious education.
4: Anybody predicting The outcome of this case would have to say that the court will overturn the First Circuit here and say that the students have a choice about whether to use a voucher or Funds from the state, and if they have the ability to use them in a private school, that it would be unconstitutional to prevent them from going to use them at a religious private school, which in fact is what Maine had required. Maine, because it has such small school districts, often gives money to students and says, We don't have enough resources to have you go to public school here, so take it to a private school of your choice. But they had said, You can't take it to a private religious school. And again, With this court, I'm very confident that they will recognize a broader free exercise right and decide that Maine has to permit their residents to use the state funds for religious education
3: well, even before Justice Amy Coney Barrett got on the court, the justices have been ruling in favor of religious rights over just about any other rights. And this would follow up on the 2020 ruling in Espinoza.
4: It's It's very similar to Espinoza. Espinoza was the Montana case, which had to do with tax credits. And in this case, it's not tax credits, it's basically tuition dollars. And I think the court is going to follow Espinoza and expand it, and doesn't have to expand it that much to suggest that the main system is unconstitutional as well. Last night I found this. He's detainee number 24. We watched the video. They waterboarded him 183 times. Everything they got from him was either a lie or something they already had.
0: If it works, why do you need to do it 183 times?
5: Because if what we did to him
0: ever came out in the court
5: of law, the case is over.
3: The movie, appropriately called The Report, is about the CIA's use of torture at black sites following the September 11th attacks. And the Senate Intelligence Committee's report on the CIA's rendition, detention, and interrogation program, commonly called the torture program. Now the first detainee taken to the CIA's first black site, Abu Zubaydah, who was repeatedly tortured and waterboarded at least 83 times, is taking his case to the Supreme Court. I've been talking to Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago-Kent College of Law. Zubeda is what's known as a forever prisoner, held without formal charges at Guantanamo Bay for 15 years. What's he asking the court? After he was captured in Pakistan,
4: he was taken to a CIA black site in Poland where he was interrogated and tortured for a great deal of time and actually did provide useful information. Zubaida, through his attorneys, tried to challenge what happened in Poland and suggest that Poland was complicit in the CIA's torture campaign. And the European Court of Human Rights agreed with him, and that set off continuing inquiry in Poland. Now, during this Polish investigation... He asked for, and Poland courts agreed, for information from the United States, which would then shed light on what happened in Poland. And he sent a subpoena to two psychologists were contractors of the CIA for information about this black site in particular where he was held. And these CIA contractors had talked publicly about their role in the torture campaign, but had not disclosed details about what happened at this particular site. And the lower court said that the CIA did not have to give up any kind of information because of the state secrets privilege, but the Ninth Circuit reversed.
3: So the state secrets privilege protects information the government says would harm national security if exposed. Tell us the basis of the Ninth Circuit's reversal.
4: Relatively controversial because the Ninth Circuit said that the lower court should have made a line-by-line determination about the testimony, what testimony would be allowed that didn't reveal a State secret and should be permitted. And I think that they were influenced by the fact that the discussion of these prisons that were directed by the CIA is common knowledge. And so they thought that the government was pushing too much of this information under the rug and that they should not be allowed to make a blanket refusal to allow any kind of information. So the Ninth Circuit said you got to make a line by line determination. And the government said state secret privilege, you get to dismiss the entire case. It's too dangerous to have the court segregate information that's permissible already in the public domain or would not reveal a state secret from that which is problematic. So we'll have to see. It's a very strange procedural posture, but nonetheless, at the heart of it is the question about state secrets. Should we allow it, the government sort of to have an immunity because state secrets and not have to respond to this request for information? Or do we say, okay, it's like an evidentiary privilege and obviously the government wouldn't have to disclose anything that's a state secret, but at the same time, It does have a duty to disclose anything that's connected with it that does not raise the kind of dangers that a state secret would.
3: Now let's turn from the CIA to the FBI and a case originally brought by three Muslim men who claimed they were targets of an FBI dragnet surveillance program solely because of their religion.
4: Like Zubay, was, this case arises after 9-11 and some of the credible overreaction that our government took in terms of law enforcement. In this case, they infiltrated a Muslim community, including taping conversations in a mosque, simply because the FBI wanted to get tabs on what was going on to make sure there was no terror, sort of as a proactive measure. In this case, there were about 11 different claims. That were brought Fourth Amendment religion claims and so forth, and in this particular case, the Ninth Circuit overturned the district court and held that some of the claims could go forward, and as in Zubaydah one of the claims that the government had used as a defense was state secrets that they didn't want to disclose methodology names and the means by which this illegal surveillance took place and ninth circuit limited the state secrets as they did in Zubaydah, holding that the district court had to make a narrow decision about what was actually a state secret and what was legal and what was not and the ninth circuit in doing this adopted a view that the FISA act the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act actually modified this common law state secrets privilege and narrowed it so that the result would not be dismissal of the case, but rather just in-camera inspection by the lower court to determine what in fact had to be excised. So this is the Ninth Circuit suggesting that the state secrets privilege goes too far.
3: Considering this and Zubeda, is the court taking an interest in state secrets?
4: The court is clearly taking an interest in state secrets. It has not returned to state secrets really since the Reynolds case during the Cold War, and they may use these two cases together to suggest the exact contours of the doctrine. They don't have to. There's many other technical issues involved in the case, but the clear import, at least at first glance, would be that the court wants to say, this is a common law privilege. How far does it extend? How should it be applied?
3: Turning to immigration, the Supreme Court is going to consider whether federal courts can review decisions by immigration officials. And a question that both parties in the appeal asked the justices to take up, but lower courts are split.
4: So this is a case on the first glance has to do with just trying to reconcile a a, uh, split in the circuits. But it does have to do also with control of of administrative agencies here, the Bureau of Immigration Appeals. And the court in a variety of cases is suggesting that it is concerned by the unreviewable discretion and power that administrative agencies wield. So it might be that the court is taking this case just to vet the question about how much we want to read statutes to allow them to preclude judicial review. In this case, um it's actually a very narrow case that had to do with a discretionary a right um to ask for discretionary relief from the agency to stay in this country even though uh, because of the fact that the individual here has a job and there's a and you can if you have a good job you can ask for discretionary relief and the agency and the 2 to 1 vote had turned him down because he had either negligently or purposefully in the past checked off a box that he was um, a U.S. citizen when he was applying for a driver's license. And they used that reason to say you can't apply for discretionary relief. And the court said that they read the, the, the statute to preclude review over facts allowing petitions for discretionary relief, but not for laws and any kind of legal challenge. So it's a very narrow case in terms of whether you can have factual review, but it does go then sort of immunize the agency from any kind of judicial review, at least with respect to factual determinations. And so, again, the court may take it just to clean up and make sure that the courts are all sort of uniform in interpreting this um, right to have a discretionary appeal, or they may also be looking at this because they are reluctant to allow a preclusion and review provision to um, immunize a agency from any kind of judicial oversight.
3: Let's turn to another case involving agencies and Medicare reimbursement. This involves the controversial Chevron Doctrine, which basically says that courts have to defer to government agencies. When a law's language is ambiguous,
4: so in some ways the, the American Hospital case is a very uh, detailed question about Medicare reimbursement at different rates, and the question is, can the agency um, change the rate of reimbursements that it had previously um, recognized? And but the interesting issue that comes up is that the agency's power. To change the rates of reimbursement um, stemmed from language in the statute that allows them to calculate and adjust reimbursements as they find necessary. And that's what the agency did. But it's very broad language, adjustment power, and can this adjustment power be used by the agency to change the methodology with which they had reimbursed? hospitals for um, drug purchases in the past. So the Chevron Doctrine is implicated because if you defer to all reasonable agency constructions of of open-ended terms like adjustment, in essence, you're giving agencies incredible power. So this case may be used as a reason to, once again, limit deference to administrative agencies' interpretations of statutes when they are so open-ended and could give rise to expanded agency power. So just like a power to, if the term in the statute is a power to modify or a power to adjust, Chevron deference used in that way leads to a great expanse, can lead to a great expanse of agency power. And so the court might limit Chevron in some other uh, means, or as with you know, as Justice Gorsuch should say, he wants to get rid of all of it altogether.
3: How many of the justices have expressed a desire just to get rid of the Chevron deference? Well,
4: what's what's fascinating about ju- we have no idea about it, Justice Barrett, by the way, but what's fascinating about Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, is they believe in expanded presidential power even if it's never been recognized in the past, but they believe in whittling down power of the very agencies below the president. Um, And so Justice Alito would probably join in with them, um, maybe Justice Thomas as well. And so it might turn on what Justice Barrett thinks, and she really has not had the opportunity uh, to weigh in in terms of the determinants of Chevron doctrine. I would expect that this is not going to be the case where they will dismantle Chevron altogether, though I could be wrong, but rather it does cry out for a limitation that many have argued for before, suggesting that when an agency can interpret a provision so as to expand its power, that's when the reasonableness deference uh, should be discarded, because we need a check on an agency to make sure that they don't aggrandize their own power at the expense of the regulated public.
3: Thanks so much, Hal, for giving us that introduction to next term at the Supreme Court. That's Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago-Kent College of Law. Coming up next, the Cleveland Indians are changing their name. But what about the other team named the Cleveland Guardians? This is Bloomberg. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people
1: in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists.
4: Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L dot com.
3: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The D.C. Court of Appeals has ordered the release of a man accused of taking part in a pepper spray assault on police during the January 6th Capitol riot, a reversal of the order of the district court judge. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner, McCarter & English. First of all, is it unusual for an appeals court to be reviewing decisions by district court judges about whether to release defendants on bail?
5: It really is unusual for courts of appeal to be taking a look at those decisions because they're typically left up to the trial judge. The trial judge is the one who has the most information and hears the arguments from counsel and usually makes that decision based upon two factors whether the individual is a danger to themselves or a danger to others. And if the court makes a finding that either one of those facts exists, the court will detain an individual pre-trial and they will have to stay in custody until their trial begins.
3: So now the appeals court on Monday ordered the release of George Tanios. He was accused of macing a police officer at the January 6th Capitol riot and attacking Officer Brian Sicknick, who died after the attack. So why did the appeals court decide that he should be released when the judge decided he should be detained?
5: In this case, the Court of Appeals took a look at the lower court ruling and decided that the judge had erred in detaining this defendant pre-trial. The Court of Appeals looked at the individual's past record and saw that he had no past felony convictions. He had no ties to any extremist organizations and no post-January 6 criminal behavior that would otherwise show that he posed a danger to the community. Another factor that has weighed in on these decisions is whether or not there's evidence of premeditation. So in certain cases where prosecutors have been able to show that the defendants planned to commit violent acts, that they brought pepper spray or other weapons to the January 6 riot and intended to use them on police officers, some of those defendants have also been detained pre-trial as evidence that they pose a danger to the community, and if released, would continue to pose a danger to the community.
3: What's interesting is that Tanios was seen in a video with Julian Cater, according to an FBI affidavit, Quote, working to assault law enforcement officers with an unknown chemical substance by spraying officers directly in the face and eyes. Yet a panel of this same appeals court, the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, affirmed a judge's order keeping Cater in custody. How do you reconcile those two?
5: Well, I think it shows how difficult these decisions are and that they are made on a case by case basis. Here you can have a situation where you have different panels of the Court of Appeals, looking at the same case and coming up with different decisions. One of the reasons you have these disparate rulings on facts that may seem somewhat similar goes to the fact that this was such an unprecedented circumstance. The January 6th riots are something that judges have really never dealt with before, and they're weighing the threat that these individuals may pose to the community against their individual rights. And one of the most difficult questions that are faced by judges in making this decision is whether or not these defendants are likely to repeat any of the conduct that occurred on January 6th. Some judges have looked at the conduct of the defendants and decided they pose a continuing danger to the community. Other judges have looked at the very same facts and decided that the circumstances of January 6th were so unique that they will not pose a danger to repeat that conduct and therefore should not be held pretrial.
3: The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, in a July opinion written by Judge Robert Wilkins, that opinion has become the sort of framework for decisions on pretrial detention. And Wilkins said that everyone who entered the Capitol on January 6th did not necessarily pose the same risk of danger and the preventive detention statute should apply to the January 6th defendants the same as it applies to everyone else. So is he saying that, you know, some people who committed violence that day can get out?
5: I think it does. I think what the judge is saying that there are no automatic rules that would require someone to be detained pre-trial or not. The judge in this case looked at one individual and said it was not obviously wrong to conclude that statements as a whole pose a danger to the community. And in this particular case, Judge Wilkins was talking about a defendant who had a past history of expressing bias against African Americans and Jews. And the judge viewed that this violent rhetoric in connection with the events of January 6th made him unsuitable for pretrial release.
3: It seems that prosecutors are not asking for detention of all the suspects. You were a former federal prosecutor. What kind of a weighing process do you go through when you're deciding whether or not you want to hold someone in prison pending trial?
5: That's a great question because it's a very difficult assessment to make obviously denying somebody their freedom even before they get their day in court is a very serious issue. And typically, individuals are released on bond so that they can prepare for trial, so they can meet with their counsel. And in fact, it's a situation where they've not yet been found guilty of committing any offense. And so it stands to reason that they should not be sitting in prison before their trial even starts but some cases are unique and some cases create situations where an individual is a risk to the community, where there's a danger that the person could be released and perhaps commit another violent act. And those are the circumstances that prosecutors ask for pretrial detention in order to protect the community. But the facts there have to be specific to the individual defendant and prosecutors have the burden of establishing that this defendant is a potential danger to the community in order to ask for pretrial detention.
3: So we haven't seen any charges that I know of of sedition or treason. Why do you think they're not charging that? Well, there was talk about charges of sedition
5: right after the January 6th riot. Sedition, as it's generally understood, means inciting revolt against the government. And there was talk specifically about a group within the Department of Justice evaluating whether sedition charges would be brought against the rioters. And there was even an interview by the then-acting U.S. Attorney Michael Sherwin for the District of Columbia, who said that prosecutors were mulling seditious conspiracy charges against some of the rioters. And he even went so far as to say that he believes the facts do support those charges, and he thinks that those charges will ultimately be brought. But as you pointed out, those charges have not been brought and nor have charges of treason been brought, another charge that is very difficult to prove. And the reason for that is basically that these charges have rarely been brought. There have been only 10 cases of treason in the history of the United States. And sedition is also a difficult charge to bring. And it is something that has rarely been successful when it has been charged. There was a recent case in which individuals in Michigan were charged a militia group that brought an uprising against the government. But even in that case, the, the judge threw out the sedition conspiracy charges saying that the hateful diatribes used by the defendants were protected by the First Amendment. So the problem with the charged sedition is that it brings into the prosecution the debate as to whether or not the defendants are truly urging a revolt against the government or are they engaging in some form of protected political speech. That's something that makes the case much more difficult for prosecutors. and I think that's why we're seeing the obstruction charges that are being charged here rather than prosecutors charging sedition or treason.
3: So, Bob, there have been many prosecutors that have been accused of overcharging. So here, why not just charge sedition along with lesser charges and see if you can prove it or not? Well, sometimes
5: you do see prosecutors throwing a number of charges into a case and then ultimately letting the jury decide if the more serious charges apply. But it does also open the door to other defenses. And I think that's what prosecutors are worrying about. There is a potential as a prosecutor when you bring charges, if it's perceived by the jury that you're overcharging the case, that you're trying to bring more serious charges then the evidence will sustain that that can sometimes backfire and ultimately result in a jury rejecting your case entirely. And that's why I think prosecutors have backed away from the sedition charges. They think that it opens the door into questions about what the intent of these defendants, whether they were really trying to overthrow the government or whether they're simply exercising their political free speech. And they want to avoid those discussions and focus instead on their conduct rather than their speech.
3: So prosecutors have charged obstruction of an official proceeding in at least 235 defendants, according to the Washington Post. What does that signal to you that that's the charge that they're going with?
5: Well, I think prosecutors are taking the safer route. They do not want to see a lot of acquittals in these cases, should these cases ultimately proceed to trial. And so they're focusing on the conduct of the defendants rather than getting involved in a lot of the speech-related charges. Here they are looking at what the individual defendants did, how they stormed the Capitol, whether they committed violent acts, and ultimately linking to that, obstructing the official proceeding, which in this case was the Joint House and Senate session on January 6th, certifying the Electoral College vote. And in this way, they can focus the prosecution on the individual acts by each of those defendants and argue that ultimately, individually and collectively, it led to an obstructing of that proceeding since lawmakers had to flee the chambers and the vote could not continue as a result of the rioters' actions.
3: A federal judge has recently warned that that charge could be unconstitutionally vague. Explain what his concerns are.
5: What the judge was talking about is the fact that the government could face a constitutional vagueness problem if it cannot articulate to the court or put individuals clearly on notice how corruptly obstructing or influencing Congress differs from ordinary trespass, parading, or disorderly conduct in the Capitol. It really comes down to the question of what corrupt obstruction means and whether or not that is something that could be viewed as an overcharge and something that really is nothing different than a disorderly person's offense. The statute the prosecutors are using here is an expansion of the obstruction of justice statute that was adopted by Congress in 2002 as a result of Sarbanes-Oxley. And what it does is it adds language that says whoever corruptly obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding is guilty of a criminal offense. But some defense lawyers have questioned whether this expansion really goes too far, whether Congress intended this to only apply to financial fraud or to traditional obstruction of justice crimes, such as prosecutors are charging here. What the judge is essentially concerned about here is that these trials may not take place for a couple of years at least. And if it ultimately turns out that the charge is constitutionally deficient, That this will create a huge problem, potentially even a double jeopardy problem for prosecutors. So the judge is really doing prosecutors a favor by raising this issue now and allowing prosecutors to make an argument that the statute is not unconstitutionally vague. The one downside for prosecutors is that by raising this constitutional issue now, it throws a bit of a monkey wrench into plea discussions,
3: Looking at this case with the video evidence they have, and they have evidence after the fact, does it seem like these are going to be easy cases to prosecute?
5: Well, these cases do have a lot of videotaped evidence, and all of the defendants who are charged in these cases appear on some form of video, so their conduct is really irrefutable. What they did, what they were doing, what they said, a lot of that has been picked up on microphones. And so there's a lot of evidence that prosecutors have to work with here. And I do think ultimately we're going to see a lot of these cases resolved in a guilty plea rather than going to trial because of that overwhelming evidence. But again, prosecutors have to be careful not to overcharge these cases. And at the same time, they also have to be careful not to treat different defendants with similar charges against them differently. So there has to be some kind of consistency and uniformity to how prosecutors ultimately treat these defendants who are in similar situations. At the end of the day, each of these defendants will be treated individually based upon their individual conduct, and ultimately prosecutors have to ensure that they are treated fairly and in an even-handed way so that we don't have sentences for some defendants that wind up being much harsher than other defendants who did essentially the same criminal conduct.
3: Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz of MacArthur & English. Coming up next, the next Solicitor General. This is Bloomberg.